The new Trek Medallion SLR is Trek's ultimate race bike. It's been developed over seven generations and it's now faster, lighter and smoother than ever before. Thanks to the refined cam tail tube shapes and redesigned bar and stem, the 2022 Madone is the fastest road bike Trek has ever produced. Yet it's also one of the most comfortable. Trek's revolutionary Isoflow seat tube design not only decreases drag, but it also aids compliance. And as we all know, aero plus smoothness equals speed. The 2022 Trek Madone SLR will be ridden by the Trek Segafredo men's and women's teams at the biggest events on the cycling calendar, including the 2022 Tour de France and the inaugural Tour de France Femme. The Trek Madone SLR will be available globally through trekbikes.com and via Trek's global network of retail partners. Welcome back to Cyclist Magazine Podcast. I'm super excited today to bring you the amazing Imogen Cotter for a chat. If anybody has their head buried in the sand and doesn't go on Instagram, Imogen is an Instagram sensation, but she's a lot more than that. She is the outgoing Irish elite road champion and professional cyclist for Planta Pura. James, are you excited about this one? Absolutely, mate. Let's get into it. James, how are you this week? Anthony, uh, yeah, I'm good. I've you know I've been better, been worse. Uh, a little bit stressed, if I'm honest. Oh yeah, what's what's the stress? Well, basically, have you ever sold a house? Have you ever sold a house or tried to buy a house? Nah, nah, it's just that's too. That sounds way too stressful. Way too stressful. Way too adult. Something something that one of those things where you're like, why didn't they teach us about this in school? Why don't they teach us about tax? And why don't they teach us about mortgages? Uh, and why don't they tell us just never to enter into it? So it's been a very stressful time for me um, trying to, and it still is, and it is for lots of people. I shouldn't really moan. It's a good position to be in, but my days, I've needed some time away on the bike. So you're not getting much proper bike training done. It's more of a meditative experience for you. Well, uh, yeah, I would say so. And I was actually thinking, and you just used the word there, taking it right out of my mouth, how I can use my bike for that meditative experience. Because... As we established last episode, you are now going to be my self-styled, self-help guru, and I'm going I'm to mine you for all your worth. So I want to know how I convert my day-to-day stresses into something that is a bit more positive using the power of two wheels, that is the bicycle. I think there's definitely a sweet spot. So I'm finding this week, I'm getting back into, I've had a period of maybe, I'd say four years almost, where uh, I haven't pressed the lap button on my by computer i actually had to stop the other day to google where is the lap button to do an interval for the first time because i'm getting back training for some gravel events and having a target is a really big powerful one when you have that target action seems to just happen and you get out on the bike without having that target it's like oh will i go cycling today will i not you're in this consequenceless place but when you have that target it's like if you ask an archer to shoot his first question is going to be like okay well what am i shooting at once you have that target now you can start gauging like you know how far you pull the bow back you know angle of trajectory it seems to change everything and for me that's when i find a lot more peace with the bike when i'm aiming for targets and they don't have to be you know these great grandiose targets of i'm going to win stages of tour de france or i'm going to secure a professional contract it could literally be in six weeks from now i'm going to do a hundred mile ride and i'm not going to hate my life after it uh okay right yeah 
100 miles is possibly pushing it for me at the moment. I might have to be looking at... Because that's like 100... For some reason, we still do everything. We do everything in kilometres over it. Even I wasn't sure if you did. I was trying to be real woke there. And I was like, I speak James's language. I'll bring it back to miles. No, well, we've got this mixture. We measure ourselves in feet and inches. We measure horses and hands. We weigh things in stone. But when we talk about bikes, we try and do kilometres. Because it sounds more cultured, I think. Like our, you know, our European... Or continental European cousins. We are technically still part of Europe, apparently. <laughs> we try not to be. Um, but yeah, okay, no, I'm with you. Definitely on the target setting thing. And that does actually ring true because the other thing I have been doing mostly this week or last weekend was doing a triathlon uh, much against my better judgment. But that definitely did help me pull the bow back a little bit more, aim for something. But my goodness, no amount of training and brick sessions helped me get off the bike and into the run i was like bambi on ice it was the most horrible thing i don't know if you've got any tips for that triathlon's a funny sport isn't it yeah it's like triathlon's a weird phenomenon in triathlon you know if you're a bike racer or a cycling enthusiast you pick an event cycling maybe it's your local criterium and you try to get better at this event and it's like okay i got a little bit better week one or week two than week one and you see that progression but there's this weird phenomenon in triathlon where somebody goes in they're like okay I'll do a sprint distance triathlon. Okay, that went terrible. You know what the problem is? I need to go longer. I'll do an Olympic <laughs> distance triathlon. So I see my buddies who are the worst at triathlon. They're like, what's the plan? Ironman. Ironman's yeah. where it's at. That's what I'm doing next year. It's like, this is not the problem. That, no, that is very true. But so but turn, turning this back to you then, with your, you said you're going to be doing some, um, going in for some gravel races. Are you going super, because you, as you say, you haven't been doing a lot of riding in the last few years are you going to go super big and super hard uh to be able to <laughs> to be able to compete based on an engine as opposed to like upper limit revs yeah you know what i had this idea that we're, we're all seeing this explosion in gravel cycling at the moment you know we could sit for the next half an hour and talk about the reason why lack of cars more adventure more inclusive etc but there's a community out there now or a sub community that's like gravel pros you know quote end quote and I was thinking about with a friend and we were chatting over a beer and we were like, well, what is the barrier for being a gravel pro? It's like there's none, only like self-titling yourself a gravel pro. So for a section on my podcast, I said, you know what, I'm going to do a new gravel pro roadman cycling section where I'm going to be the gravel pro and I'm going to enter a calendar of gravel pro races. And I was tempted to put this off until next year and say, okay, I'll do six months on the sly and I'll get back in shape. And it's like, honestly, no one cares about me getting back in shape. Everyone wants to hear the suffering. So I'm like, I'm just diving into events like immediately. So I'm in basically the worst shape of my life and I'm starting the rift next week. And I'm gonna get my head kicked in. Oh, the Iceland one. Yeah, you've you've raced that as well. Yeah, 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 and it and it definitely kicked me in the head. Honestly, it's yeah. The weather. We discussed this uh, the other day, didn't we? Um, I think a bit of the Iceland rift, and the weather in Iceland is just insane. I mean, you guys, you're a bit like us, you know. We live on blustery islands, so it's no no great surprise that you can get four seasons in a day. But man, you're gonna to have to pack a Gore-Tex jacket, a Gore-Tex thermal jacket. You're gonna probably have to take some kind of uh, Castelli Gabba short sleeve, long sleeve, arm warmers, knee warmers, and be prepared to take all of it off at the drop of a hat and then put it all back on again. Meanwhile, um, just like desperately hoping that the, around the next bend is a feed station because you'll be going for tens of kilometers was just with nothing, just on your own. Just There'll be a lot of time to meditate in that one, I reckon. It sounds epic. I, I can't wait. So I'm trying to sprinkle in and confirm my calendar for the rest of the year at the moment. So I'm going to do Badlands in Spain in September 
which is looks stupid hard. It's That's, like yeah. 700 kilometers. So Yeah, bloody hell. I'm kind of trying to not die in the desert because that's Europe's <laughs> only desert. Yeah. So that's my goal with that one. Uh, no, that's not actually true. Europe's only, there's another desert in Europe and it's, uh, weirdly, it's in Dungeness, which is a, la- a little known part of, well, it worked to you anyway, uh, part of the UK down in Kent and it's a shingle beach which technically constitutes a desert. Like James, that's why people are tuning into this podcast. That is a knowledge bomb. That's that just a knowledge like bomb. Mic drop moment. Yeah, that, I think that's. I mean, mic drop or conversation killer. I, I'm going to go with the <laughs> latter. I'm going to say it's a conversation killer, and we should roll into the good conversation that we're about to have or have had, but we're about to drop with uh, Imogen Cotter. Today's guest is the brilliant Imogen Cotter. She's a professional cyclist for Planta Pura. I'm going to call her a social media sensation, even though I'm not sure what that means. Imogen, welcome to Cyclist Podcast. (laughs) Thank you for having me. And I don't think I would describe myself as a social media sensation, but I'll take it. I don't know, you've got 103,000 followers. That's 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 pretty sensational. Yeah, it's kind of happened very like naturally and gradually though. So um, I kind of started sharing my cycling journey when I first started back in um, 2008. 18 I started really sharing stuff and it kind of just grew really naturally so maybe yeah it it sounds like a lot but it's grown like very gradually over time and it's very nice actually the community but like it is a lot I get I get this uh reality check from time to time on my podcast where I look at the stats and someone messaged me recently saying they were starting a podcast and they only had 200 people listening and I was like, if you 200 people in a room, that's a lot, a lot of people. Can you, you could fill the Bernabeu with your followers <laughs> from Instagram, which is you in the center of the stadium, like soaking up the atmosphere. Yeah, it's mad when I think about it like that. But actually, like when I put things out there, I never really think too much about what I put on social media. Like, obviously, I feel like I have a story that I want to tell. I mean, like through my cycling, but also um yeah maybe I, I I'll give a bit of background as well because like I've started cycling in kind of a, at a later stage in life like I was 24 when I started cycling and 20 what am I 20 I was 26 when I did my first season on the road so like pretty pretty old in terms of you know discovering cycling uh, and and racing and then I, so I was kind of sharing all that up along and that's kind of where an audience grew because I moved from Ireland to Mallorca and then I moved from Mallorca to Belgium and I kind of threw myself in like just went for it with um with the cycling in Belgium and I think people were just kind of intrigued by that story because yeah it, it's a it was a big change and I knew absolutely nothing about racing and then so I kind of grew a following through that and then I, you know, then I've moved back from Belgium to Ireland and now I've moved to Girona and then I had a really awful accident. Um, so I think people have been following up along and had been, you know, following and and seeing the journey where it was going. I got my first, you know, I won the national title. I got my first pro contract and it was like all these things, like this dream, this journey was like going somewhere. And, um, yeah, then, then in January of this year, you know, it was kind of, everything was great. It was going to be my first season as a pro, you know, uh, wearing the national champs jerseys and like world tour races doing the ronda doing whatever race you know all of the races i dreamed of doing and then yeah in like a split second i was hit by a car on a training ride and it was all just like pulled the the rug was pulled out from under my feet and i feel like that again has been kind of a thing where you know it, you realize it's not all 
it's not the fairy tale it was in the beginning of January. And it's kind of like another, okay, now people want to follow me on this journey of like going from being at the top of my game and really excited to race all of, you know, to fulfill my dreams and then being like, okay, right, let's start from absolute like square one again and build back up. So yeah, it's kind of like a, I guess there is a story there that that people just want to follow along on. And I'm really lucky in that I've got a really supportive community on there as well. So, But that's it. We, no one likes the straight line stories. Uh, we've talked about yeah. this before. The, the story has to have the zigzag, the story arc yeah. without setbacks. It's just such a boring story. Like someone, oh, I came from another sport. I was good in that sport, got into cycling and I crushed it. Like, does anyone like... Tajay Pogacha like they don't really we admire him and stuff but it's like he needs some adversity he needs to get hit with a van out training like happened to you and then that's the story yeah I know it's kind of that there are like there are stories that I guess everybody in the peloton has a story and I I feel like when I look at guys like Wout Van Aert or you know Matthew I'm like wow I, it all seems so I know it's obviously not so easy to them, but I look at them and I'm like, wow, it all seems so easy to them. Or I look at like Annemiek van Vleuten and I'm like, God, that looks, it looks like it comes easy, but I know it doesn't. But from the outside looking in, it feels like it does come easy. But yeah, I guess everybody, when you talk to everybody in the peloton, there's always a story behind every cyclist. It's all up and down. And we can see from the outside that it all looks like it's wrapped with a bow and like Wout van Aert winning um, you know, winning the stage yesterday and having whatever results he has behind him for the last six stages, he was never less than second. But then last night I was watching on Belgian TV here because my neighbor has Belgian TV. I was watching the Wout van Aert like comeback story on one of the Belgian TV channels of when he crashed at the tour, you know, so I can look at him now and think, yeah, it just comes so naturally. But yeah, he was absolutely, he was on crutches, like not able to walk, you know, all these things. But we do do that in everything in life. Like, you know, to use the yeah. golf analogy, we look at Rory McIlroy smashing the ball 350 yards straight down the center of the fairway and we kind of celebrate it as a miracle. But you don't see the thousands and thousands of hours that he spent mm. shanking balls into the hedges when he was a kid. Like yeah. if you read the Andre Agassi autobiography, which is phenomenal yeah. if anyone's looking for a sports book, like he wasn't even allowed to go to school. He wasn't allowed to go to bed in the evening. It was getting dark. His dad would be shouting at him. He got to hit, you know, a thousand more forehands and his hands are bleeding. You don't see that when he goes and wins a US Open. You only see the, the celebratory moment. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I think social media, like it gets a bad rap, but actually if people are willing to share the ups and downs of it, and, and I am, like I'm willing to share whatever, it doesn't bother me because I know that there's people who it, it helps. Um, I think that it can be really helpful and it can be really um, motivating. And for me, when I've found athletes pages where they're, where they are sharing their story, and I feel like a lot of people don't do it, but where they're sharing kind of the, the comeback story, I find it really motivating and, and like, yeah, it's, it's honest and it can't always be, be happy, can it? Like it's not, if you're going to be honest, it's not always brilliant. I'm sure Pogachar has cried after training sessions or <laughs> after a race. <laughs> He's only human, right? <laughs> he has to like, you know, it can look great from the outside, but I'm sure it's all up and down, you know? Yeah. So yeah, exactly. It's all, it's all up and down. It's that we are drawn to the, the tragedy, the comedy, the highs and the lows in life. And you pointed, you know, just outline saying you'd seen um uh what an art documentary and that's on belgian tv imagine for a second they're making that documentary on 
Imogen Cotter. What's the opening scene uh, look like in your kind of sporting journey, do you think? I, I already know. It's like it's like I'm sitting at the table and, it, you know, in the background, it's like me crossing the nationals, like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. And it's like all that sombre music playing. And then I'm like, and then, you know, I can already imagine what it would be like because it's so easy to do because everything was like a bloody fairy tale. Like, it really was really great and then it just all of a sudden wasn't and it was all you know pulled out pulled away from me and I've I you know I was actually lucky enough in that as soon as it happened at, for my own interest and for my the interest of like I wanted to track my progress I began videoing everything so if they're ever making the documentary I've got all of the footage they need <laughs> I was like from day dot I was like record me walking I'm gonna I'm gonna compare this in a week and you know I I was really um I wanted to make sure I could track everything I was really kind of even though I couldn't get on the bike and I couldn't exercise for like the first month of, of after I was hit by the car um I was also I, I kind of took my athlete mindset and applied it to my recovery and I had read like you know I had read Lance Armstrong's autobiography when he had uh, you know, and and he wrote about making his recovery from cancer into like it was like he applied his athlete mindset then to his chemo, and I remember reading it and being like, oh, that's really interesting. Like, mm, I, I and you know, I was interesting and I didn't give it a second thought. And then, Richard, that book was fictional. <laughs> I, hey, I have to say, guys, we can we can talk badly about Lance, but they were all doing it. Okay, maybe I shouldn't say this, but you know, I, I feel like. He was the one who got caught. Probably a lot of people were dirty. But anyway, we'll move on from this controversial part. I don't want to. I don't want to stir the pot. Uh, we definitely want to get in and talk about the crash. Uh, but yeah. I just thinking like with proximity, uh, a really difficult day you must have had recently. And excuse me if I miss it on your social. But the mm. national champs just happened a few weeks ago, and it was the last day. If listeners aren't aware, when you're a national champion, you get a national champs kit made from your team. So it's the kit you wear every day out training. So the national champ, the day of the national champs, would have been the last day you wore your national champs jersey out training. Was that an emotional day? Yeah, it was absolutely. No, okay, wait. It was. It was sad because I had so. When I was hit by the car, I ruptured my quadriceps tendon, broke my patella, and my knee was completely bust open, like just blood everywhere, looked awful. The firefighters thought I was going to lose my lower leg, like it just looked awful. And I also broke my radius and my ulna, just like the, um, just in my wrists, the kind of ends of them there. Um, and so I had two surgeries on my knee and then I had two, I had a surgery on my wrist here in Spain, um, which wasn't an emergency surgery, but I didn't know that you could get second opinions or I knew it, but it just wasn't something I was just on autopilot, like get the surgery done here. Let's like go to the next step. But anyway, they did the surgery really badly here. So I ended up having to go back to Belgium on the 15th of June to get, um, to get another surgery with like a wrist specialist there. And I think I had been preparing all year for that day. I knew I would find June, particularly the end of June, pretty difficult. Um, and I also knew when I added the surgery into it, um, I don't know if either of you had surgery, but for me, 
I've realized now that I've had four surgeries this year that every time I have surgery, I have like a two week depression. Like it feels like I'm depressed after it. And really it hit me hard after I came back from Belgium in the middle of June. I just did not want to leave the house. Like I just was like, fuck. it was just really difficult. And, and then adding in the nationals on top of that, it felt really painful. And I, I wanted to make sure that I could remember it like remember having the national kit so one of my friends is a photographer here and she came over to to the house because I wanted to have pictures that I remembered with the national jersey on like I didn't have any like I'd done no races I had you know I barely anything and so I got some pictures like the day I think it was maybe the day before the nationals and you know I was thinking she was here with me and I just started crying I was like I'm here in my national kit on the turbo with my arm in a cast you know, my knee is, is okay now, but it's, you know, I can't walk downstairs properly. And I thought like, God, fuck this. Like, it was just so unfair. Um, and on the day of the nationals, I kind of just was ready for it. I have really good girlfriends around me here who kind of checked in on me. They, they were like, are you okay? Are you okay? But it, again, it was kind of the same thing. I just didn't want to leave the house. I just was feeling really flat. And then it happened. And I thought, you know what? It's happened. And that's it. Like somebody else has it. I tried my best when I had the national chance jersey to recover as quickly as I could. But when I realized it was going to be, it wasn't going to be a racing, you know, time for me, I decided let's go for like nailing this recovery in the best way that I can. And to, to approach my recovery with the same kind of approach that I would bring to races and bring to my training if I was doing it all properly. So I wanted to show that, yeah, I, I'm the national champion and I can't race, but I want to do this jersey proud regardless. So that was, um, yeah, that was a tough day, but yeah, I've, yeah, <laughs> it was a tough day. That's all I can say. Yeah. That's, I think that's such an amazing way of being able to look at it. And, you know, I'm sure, like you say, it's, that's, that doesn't just come naturally. That's hard one as well. And it takes people around you, but it also takes you know, immense mental fortitude to get to a position where you can kind of frame it like that. But it all, one thing that always occurs to me with with sports people is, you know, Lance Armstrong and that era sort of aside, you know, sport is supposed to be fair. Sport has rules. Sport is binary. There are known outcomes. Um, it just depends on who's standing at the top of, you know, top step and who's coming um, right at the back of the pack there are rules. And then what happens away from that? So what happens to you on a training ride? There are no rules for that. There's nothing to prescribe what happens before, during or after. How do you deal with that feeling of unfairness? Because most of your professional life is all about the fairness, bar a few, you know, thrown elbows and unfortunate punches. It's it's about fairness and suddenly life isn't. How do you deal with that? Yeah, I think, you know, it's just a way of framing it. Like, like you say, I just made the decision that I had to, if I wallowed in the unfairness of it, I was just going to be a misery. And there was no point wallowing in the unfairness of it. Like you can only deal, you can't control what life throws at you. You can only control how you react to it. And for me, that was, if I had, if I, you, I could have made the choice and I could have made the choice of saying, okay, I'm going to feel sorry for myself. And I'm going to go down this road of thinking, oh, this was my year. This was my chance. And, and then what? And then I, and then I sit at home and I'm miserable and I cry all the time and I don't 
my recovery goes backwards because I don't want to leave the house. I don't want to go to physio. I don't want to see anyone. Or I can say, okay, I can't cycle now in March, but maybe in April I can. And I could. So I could swim. I could cycle with one leg. Uh, there is a lot of things I could do. And I kind of made the choice of, okay, I'm not going to. I'm not going to allow it in my circle at all. And I mean at all. When I went to the physio the first day, I said to him, I don't care if my knee is the worst knee you've ever seen. You tell me it's the best. I don't want to hear it. Like, I just want positive thoughts inside my head. And, it, you know, even with friends, family, I was having no negative talk around me at all. I was so strict on that. And people might call it like toxic positivity because, yeah, I was maybe pushing some things away that were uncomfortable to feel like I didn't want to feel sorry for myself. Um, but you know what? It got me. It got me through it. And if being yeah, overly positive is what I had to do and maybe naively positive because I, I even I remember like thinking, yeah, I'll be racing again fine in May, you know, you know, being naively positive served me and it's always served me. I've always gone into things since I started cycling because I had such little knowledge of cycling when I started racing at you know, 25, 26. I thought I was always naively positive because I didn't know what the ceiling was. And so that served me in my cycling career and it served me in my recovery up until now. So yeah, life, sport is meant to be fair, but life is not fair. And yeah, it's just life. So I, all you can control is how you react to it. And I just tried to react to it as best that I could. Was that a conscious decision, Imogen? I know I've had Mark Rowan on the Roadman podcast and Mark's story is crazy he was out driving his motorbike he lost control and he got paralyzed from i think the waist down and in his recovery he made a deliberate decision to talk to the doctors and say i don't want to know my limitations only give me the possibilities so i don't want to hear you saying you can't walk again i want to hear you saying to me you can use your arms without restriction and he went on to be multiple paralympic hand cycling champion off the back of that but is that something you actively thought okay i want to keep negativity out or is that just your personality i think i had done a lot of work on it in the year beforehand i'd worked with a sports psychologist to kind of control my fear around cycling about being in the peloton and about my self-talk and a lot of it, like what you say about giving the possibilities and not the limitations, like that's a really big thing that I would have also spoken to myself about. Like if you say to yourself, I won't be scared, your brain just hears scared. <laughs> but if you say I, I'll i be brave, your brain hears brave. So, yeah, I kind of I, I agree. It It is a yeah, it's a conscious choice that you make. But I think after you work on it daily and and you you know you you actually do the work in it like writing things down reading books whatever it is eventually you just become you just see things in a better light like you become more positive and I've always been quite positive I think but this yeah in a weird way this has made me more positive because I could have died like there, there's the alternate like there, that's the alternative like I could have been paralyzed from the neck down, I could be in a coma, I could have died, like, the crash was really bad. I mean, I'm incredibly blessed that I just came away from it with what I have, because the car was an absolute mess. And my bike was in six different pieces, you know, it's, it's crazy. Uh, the, the alternative is, yeah, sorry, I've kind of rambled. I can't remember what the question was. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. 
The new Trek Medallion SLR is Trek's ultimate race bike. It's been developed over seven generations and it's now faster, lighter and smoother than ever before. Thanks to the refined cam tail tube shapes and redesigned bar and stem, the 2022 Madone is the fastest road bike Trek has ever produced. Yet it's also one of the most comfortable. Trek's revolutionary Isoflow seat tube design not only decreases drag, but it also aids compliance. And as we all know, aero plus smoothness equals speed. The 2022 Trek Madone SLR will be ridden by the Trek Segafredo men's and women's teams at the biggest events on the cycling calendar, including the 2022 Tour de France and the inaugural Tour de France Femme. The Trek Madone SLR will be available globally through trekbikes.com and via Trek's global network of retail partners. When you're clocking up all those miles in the saddle, sometimes poor road conditions or a lapse in concentration from another road user can lead to you taking a tumble. And with your body and your precious bike to consider, it's important to get help from a personal injury specialist like Express Solicitors. They'll work to get you back to your best by recovering costs for your damaged bike and gear, as well as securing you physio and mental health support. Express Solicitors will quickly tell you on the spot if they can take on your claim with real cyclists working on your problem. They take on cases others won't to help you get the most compensation possible and to be back out enjoying the open road as soon as you can. So if you need to speak to a helpful and dedicated team solely specialising in personal injury claims, visit expresssolicitors.co.uk forward slash cycling. You you touched upon there that kind of, you'd have building blocks, um, in your life prior to that, mm. you'd explored those things in terms of sports psychology. Um, was that something that you you drove for yourself and you found through um, your team or uh, any kind of affiliated parties to your team? Or was it something the team kind of provided? I'm just thinking of that kind of uh, after incident care, mm. if you like, and also something that's becoming more apparent to us over the last few years, which is... You know, it's just not good enough to have a talent and train that put them in the gym and then put them on a bike or on a soccer field or whatever. You have to nurture the person inside because that person's going to have to deal with all kinds of things. We're only mm. really waking up to that in sport fairly recently. And I think of Ian Boswell, who he springs to mind. Mm. He's quite outspoken about a crash um, uh, when he was at Katusha, I think. Um, so the 2019 Torino Adriatico, and that effectively ended his career. He retired afterwards, a good season later. He had a really bad crash, brain injury, which was detected on a kind of physio- physiological level, but not a psychological level. And he sort of says, you know, there wasn't, there's not provision for the mental mm-hmm. health, health side of things coming back from an accident in, in cycling, which is probably the most accident-prone sport <laughs> out there, yeah. short of American football. Um so yeah, how did where where did that support come from? Did it have to come from within, or did you find it in your team or in your colleagues? So I had been doing the work like last year, say all throughout last year, I was doing the work um, just with the sports psychologist that I knew. Um, it wasn't provided through my team at the time, um, and I kept in contact with that sports psychologist, um, and I worked to be honest. It, since the accident, the sports psychology or the work that I've done on myself has just come from me. I haven't, you know, yeah, it's just been me. I've had one one sports psychology appointment, but I'm actually, as of next week, going to be attending a sports psychologist, I think weekly, just until I can, I have, I have a lot of, I guess, yeah, trauma makes sense. I do have a bit, lot of trauma 
related to the accident that like yeah for example you know the 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 guy who hit me he's local here and I've seen his parents walking around I've seen his car just he got the car repaired and is driving around as normal and that's traumatic for me that's like a thing of thinking yeah my life changed my life literally every way at the way I view life changed my whole year was thrown off kilter my career was took this like absolute you know crazy different path to what I thought it would go down and and their life goes on as normal and you know that's that is hard to deal with um and it's something I don't think I I'm, I'm capable of doing a lot on my own but I'm not capable of dealing with that stuff on my own and I know that I need to unpack that kind of negative energy I don't let it affect me a lot but like yeah it's it's a weird thing to kind of get my head around it that when someone can yeah, nearly kill you, but also then just be like, yeah, okay, I'll just get my car fixed and I'll replace the bumper and I'll replace the lights and the windscreen and I'll just keep driving. I'm just like, what? How can you do that? Like, how could, it's so unfair. And then I have to say, yeah, it's unfair. I have to just say karma will do its thing. You know, I just let karma do its thing. I'll have a great life. I tell myself this all the time. I'm going to have a great life. He'll have an awful life. It's fine. <laughs> I just have to let it go. <laughs> Imogen, that's what this is. That's why we reached out. This is a therapy session. So feel free. You're in a safe space. It's just the three of us talking. Uh, in the spirit of therapy uh, and to take a massive step backwards, do you mind reliving that day and paint it? Because some of our listeners will be talking, will be thinking, okay, there's an elephant in the room. They've talked a lot about this crash. Yeah. What was the crash? How did it happen? Can mm-hmm. you take us back to that morning? You know, what was the morning like? Who did you go train on with? What kit were you wearing? What route did you take? Bring us into the Imogen's world. <laughs> so actually it was like a, a great, you know, it, I was, I moved to drone on the 1st of January and it was the 26th of January that it happened. And I, I was moving apartments that morning. So I'd spent the morning kind of lugging boxes around and I moved into my new apartment. And, you know, crazily enough, I kind of sent this, video to my family on whatsapp being like god i can't believe i live here and look at this amazing place and i had a real moment of being like yeah i've this is i'm proud of myself because i had left belgium and i wanted to live in this place and i made that dream come true and it was like a real moment i remember standing at the window thinking yeah this is really good and and actually then i, I went to um I went to get ready for my bike ride and I headed out later than I usually would. And eerily enough, I was putting, I always put sun cream on before I go out on the bike and I was putting my sun cream on, but I took a video of me putting the sun cream on and I put it on my Instagram story with the the song Forever Young. And like, <laughs> oh, if I had died that day, imagine that. Like, That's a meme. It's so crazy. It's actually <laughs> oh, mad, yeah. isn't it? It's so crazy. I couldn't believe it. When I looked back and I saw that, I only saw it like last week and I was like, are you joking me? Like, thank God. That would just be so haunting for my poor family if something had happened to me. Anyway, so I headed out on the bike and um, I, I just had a couple of hours to do because I had done power testing that week and I was I was pinging. I was so ready. I was meant to go on a training camp the following week with um, my new team who I had, I'd only met like a handful of the girls. So it was going to be like my chance to meet all of my new teammates and yeah, just get ready for the season. So everything was like looking really good. Um, Headed out on this like easy two hour spin. My legs were just pinging and 
I was like close to home, just needed to add on an extra little loop. And I wasn't really sure of where the roads were taking me. So I just was taking this kind of road that it was beautiful, open fields and, you know, cycling along. Wow, I'm so lucky to live here, la la la. And then I was coming up to this kind of a bend in the road and off the apex of the bend was a kind of side road. Um, And as I was coming up to this bend in the road, I could see, so there's kind of a field, a bend is like a very generous word for it. It was just kind of a curve in the road and in the middle was a field, but it was all, um, there was no grass in the field. So you could see through to the other side and I could see that there was a cyclist coming on the other side of the road towards me. And as I came around the bend, I could see a white van coming behind him um, and it was coming quite fast. And then as I'm coming around the bend, I see that he goes to overtake this cyclist. Um, and then I start thinking, what the fuck is this guy doing? Cause this is about to, I thought he would miss me if he went back into the other side of the road really quickly. But instead of doing that, he just kept speeding to take a racing line towards the side road. So he's directly on my side of the road. And he just went into me full on. So I was going about 30 kilometers an hour. I'd say he was going 60 or 70 and just absolute. I, I hit the the front of the car with my knee, um, which, yeah, I, I was awake at this stage. So I hit the front of the car with my knee. I remember just thinking something awful is about to happen right now. And I went up in the air. I came down and I remember hitting the windscreen. It was so hard hit the windscreen and then I blacked out. And then, so after I hit the windscreen, I had fallen off the car to the side of the road. And luckily I fell off to the right side of the car because he kind of kept driving for about a hundred meters on the left side of the road. So if I'd fallen off to the left, he would have run over me, I'd be dead. There's a million what ifs, but anyway, I fell off to the right of the road. And luckily enough, the guy who was being overtaken was um, an American, um, a super, super lovely couple. I've actually stayed in contact with him. His name is Bruce. And when I woke up immediately, I saw Bruce, his face in front of me. He's in his 60s, um, has a son who's my age, um, who had a bad accident when he was away doing sports. So I think in that moment, like he he couldn't be with his son when his son was away. And it felt like he was really there for me, like he was meant to be there for me. Um, And yeah, he just held my hand. and he, his wife, uh, Faith is a nurse, well, was a nurse. Um, and he called Faith and was like, what should I do? You know, at this stage, he had called an ambulance because the driver wouldn't like, was just like, like, couldn't talk and, you know, whatever. Gave, then gave the wrong bloody address. Oh, so, sorry, I'm getting annoyed. <laughs> he gave the wrong address. <laughs> so I was sitting on the ground, like lying on the ground, literally, I can't tell you the pain and the blood oh my god i was lying on the ground for 40 minutes until an ambulance came and it's hard to explain where you are to somebody on those roads i've trained out there quite a lot and even knowing the roads it's like how do you explain what junction you're at it's not like being in ireland or the uk but this guy's a local he definitely knew what junction we were at. i think he was just trying to save his own arse anyway so i woke up and, and bruce was holding my hand and and then when he called faith faith from the you know what bruce was telling her thought that i was dying because I might've had internal injuries and I was kind of in and out um, of consciousness. And um, uh, Faith said, just hold her hand. So 
he was holding my hand constantly just saying like I was going to be fine it was going to be okay then the firefighters arrived and uh, you know you kind of have that fight or flight thing so I was Bruce was telling me don't look at your knee don't look at your knee and so I wasn't looking at my knee but when I saw the firefighters arrived I kind of remember trying to it was like I wanted to get away from the situation I remember like bending my knee but just feeling blood gush down my legs and the I was so panicked to get away like the firefighters actually had to hold my leg down because I just kept trying to get up and walk away but yeah so I remember then I um luckily could remember my dad's mobile number I was really afraid that something was going to go wrong in, in my brain because I'd hit the windscreen with my head um and so yeah I was uh I was repeating my dad's phone number in my head I remember that and repeating like my family's name and just like trying to make sure I remembered everything like personal things so that I could make sure I wasn't you know uh, you know having a concussion or like I don't know having a brain problem which would have just I I don't know how I avoided that anyway then um with the ambulance arrived and in the car in the ambulance on the way to the hospital I called my dad off the paramedics phone because my phone was completely destroyed um and then I called my dad, my dad called my mum, my mum called my sister. It's the worst call ever for a parent to get, I'd say. Yeah, I can't imagine what it must have been like. And my dad is very collected, so I was like, Dad, I'm in the ambulance, I'm okay, I'm going to be fine, I'm on the way to the hospital. Like, I, I remember feeling very calm. I don't think I even cried. They probably given me a sedative at this stage. So <laughs> probably why, <laughs> but you know, I don't think I was uh, upset at that stage. Um, and so, yeah, they, they came out a couple of days later, but yeah, I was brought into the hospital. Um, and I couldn't even get in contact with my housemate. So I remember just thinking, uh, how can I let her know that I'm here? And eventually I got, I was able to send a message through one of the nurses Instagrams cause I knew her Instagram username. And then they got into the hospital just as I was about to be wheeled off to surgery. And in that moment, it was, it was my, one of my two best friends or two of my best friends here. And, um, they just came into the room and I was just like, thank God. Like up until that moment, I was going through everything alone and I just kind of didn't, everything felt like it was a fairy tale. It wasn't really happening. And then I saw them and I was like, okay, I have people around me who love me and just wanted to like hold their hand for a second. I'd never had surgery before, so I was really afraid. Um, and yeah, they brought me to to surgery. Then I remember waking up at uh, like two in the morning and I, I knew I had cuts on my face. And when I woke up at two in the morning, it was after my knee surgery. And I remember wanting to get moving, like let I was in, you know, the ward where you have to wake up after surgery. And I was like, okay, get me out of here. And then someone came over to me and said, we're bringing you to traumatology. But I'd never heard traumatology before. I didn't even know it was a thing. I thought they said dermatology. So I started like (laughs) having a panic attack because I thought I must have like scarring all over my face. And I was like, oh my God, if the dermatologist has stayed until 2 a.m., it must be really awful. Like, because I hadn't seen myself. And I remember like, then when they just like wheeled me into a room and said, okay, like, good night. And being like, what? <laughs> okay. It's obviously fine then. But of course I couldn't get in contact with anybody because I had no phone. So I was kind of just like 
yeah, it just felt like it wasn't real in a way. It just felt like I was... Yeah, it's so it's hard just... in that moment as well I've not as severe of a crash but I had a crash in the Pyrenees before and I went into the hospital with the French team and you mm. have all the normal medical considerations everyone has like you're isolated you're not with your friends or family but then you have the language barrier and mm. then you have surgery being rushed on you and it's like mm. well you need to get surgery and it's like you don't even know how to ask okay is there is this surgery like life-threatening do I need to get this right now or can we sit on this for a week till I get a second opinion also, I didn't even know these things. Yeah, yeah, and also, there, like, is there a priority to get you back to racing a bike, or is it to, you know, do they have a priority just to get you back to being a functioning citizen again? And you don't. It's difficult to have that calmness around those situations unless you've lived through mm. it once. Yeah, I had no idea about any of it, and like, I had no idea. Even now, listening to you say that, I'm like, I wonder, could I have asked him? Could I have waited for my knee? My knee was bust open. I probably couldn't have. But like, I. I know I now know that like there's so many people who are going around with just like accepting oh this is how my body will work this is the limitation because the two surgeries I had here on my wrist and my knee were not were not well done like and I was walking around with a limp for three four months and then I still can't you know can't move my wrist so I'm in like intense physio and and there's people who just accept that as as reality because they don't know that there are better or second opinions or whatever that they can get and now I know that I, it makes me quite sad like also I had this fear when I went in for the knee surgery and it's something that took me a long time to like get over I would wake up in the night with this feeling that they had cut off my leg and I would wake up and I would just be like thinking oh my god oh my god oh my god like my leg is gone and I remember when I was going in for my second knee surgery which was like it's super not straightforward one but you know I knew it wasn't going to be any worse than the one before. And I remember like wanting to ask the doctor, please don't cut my leg off. like, <laughs> Because I just had so much fear around it. It's a really, yeah, it was a really scary time because I just didn't understand what was happening and what, what was being done. Yeah. How long did it kind of take um, post, you know, post-surgery, post-waking up, that first time around that is in the hospital before what had happened actually sank in? Yeah. Hmm. Let me think, because I remember like they just so it happened on a Wednesday and they discharged me on a Friday. And then my parents had arrived on the Friday and I went out for dinner with them that night, which I like they wheeled me to a restaurant in a wheelchair. And I remember I look back on that now. I was obviously high as a kite on <laughs> whatever they'd given me because, you know, it, <laughs> the next day I couldn't even like the next day was for that. Yeah. It was really difficult that weekend because I had been, you know, you would have looked at my Instagram the couple of days after it and thought like, oh, she had a bad accident, but can't be that bad. She's on Instagram. She's smiling like the next the Saturday and the Sunday and the whole week after that was just awful. I was I was really um, sorry. I kind of feel like I'm going to cry. So I'm going to try and (laughs) but it was like a really um, wait. (laughs) It was a really hard weekend that weekend because I had come out of hospital and they had given me a medication that really like lowers your blood pressure, but they didn't tell me this. So that whole weekend I would get up out of bed, like my parents had to carry me wherever I was going. Um, I would get out of bed and I would just faint um, and I didn't know what was happening. Um, I couldn't bet I was in like a straight leg cast, so I couldn't bend my leg and I couldn't let it get wet either. So like 
I like I was like a child again my mother was thank god for my mother like she stayed out here for three weeks with me and or four weeks even and just like was you know bathing me like I was a child again um I couldn't do anything on my own I had casts on both hands so you know um and I remember like the the time that it hit me the hardest my dad also came out for that first weekend and I was getting into the shower my mom was you know gonna wash me and um I fainted and my dad had to carry me back to bed like I remember just and he had to feed me my dinner and I remember being like like what has happened like what has actually happened it's just such a strange feeling you go from being so strong as an athlete and then all of a sudden like you're 28 years old and your dad has to carry you to bed like a child you know I couldn't sit up in bed so like if I was I was lying in bed, but if I needed to pee, like I needed to say like, mom, can you please like help me sit up? Because I couldn't do anything. I couldn't like readjust myself in bed. And then <laughs> actually I know, so that was a hard weekend, but actually now that I'm thinking about it, the moment where it all became a reality and where it kind of all crushed in on me was like three weeks later, because my phone had been broken in the crash and I you know, at the beginning, I was like, whatever, it's just a phone. But I had everything on that, like my banking app. So like, all of a sudden, my phone got cut off because I couldn't pay my phone bill. I couldn't, all of the little things started adding up. And I couldn't access my Apple ID because I needed something from the other phone. It was just a total disaster. And I remember coming home one night, and my mom was there, and my sister had come to visit from London, I got back to my apartment. And because I had been at the Apple shop trying to figure it all out. And it was like the straw that broke the camel's back because I remember like getting back to the apartment and just bawling my eyes out. I don't think I cried so hard. Like, I just, it, it was just like, I hate that I'm having to put up with this. He hit me and he's probably out having a fucking drink with his friends. It's a Saturday night and I'm literally can't get into bed on my own. I can't get up on my own. My mother's having to wash me. I can't do anything. And I can't even pay my phone bill. And it was just like the most simple thing that just threw me over the edge. And then, yeah, but, you know, every day it just got better and better from that point, thank God. If you don't follow Imogen on Instagram, folks, we'll drop her handle in the show notes. Like the story's been brilliant, Imogen, watching you from that lowest point, which you just beautifully described. And the journey isn't complete. What does the end of this story look like? Yeah, well... To be honest, now I've had my last surgery because I think the last time we were speaking, I still I was back training again, but I still had to um, have a final surgery on my wrist. So now I'm back, you know, I've signed up, back, like I've restarted my program that I had with my coach before the crash. I'm swimming every day nearly. I'm back on the bike um, and I'm just starting, as of today, like starting intense physio on my wrist to get the movement back. It's coming back bit by bit, but I just need to like go full gas with physio. Then I'm hoping in September to like head to Belgium and just get stuck into some races and just I know I won't be ready and I'll never feel ready, but I just got to do it, you know, just um, get into the races, you know, and maybe that might be a thing of saying, OK, today I'm going to do 40 kilometers and then I, I'll ride home. It might, I'm not going to say I'm going to go in, I'm going to win the first race. You know, it's not going to be a, a fairy tale like that um, because I've had quite a serious injury and the muscle in my right leg will take a long time to build back up but I'm I think I've I'll take this opportunity to like build up a really strong winter like what is it July now so if I race a bit in in September October 
and then just have like a killer winter, then come back into racing next year and just rewrite the chapter, you know. And how's how's the um, team been with all of this? Because presumably, you know, you said at the beginning, you just kind of, this was the big break, the contract, mm. the everything. Yeah. And sponsor, sponsor athletes to, to be out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so how have they been throughout this process? They've been brilliant, actually. I have to say, like, with... And I think any team with whatever has gone on with me, it would have been so easy to just be like, okay, well, you can't ride for us, so you're off the roster, you know, because nobody knew how good or bad my injuries would have been. They've been so supportive, um, like checking in, um, just seeing how I'm doing. And obviously I've got like the bike from the team, but anything that I needed in terms of equipment or, you know, things like that, they've, they've helped me out massively with. And then when it came to organizing, I realized that my knee wasn't getting better. It had kind of plateaued um, in, in like March. And I emailed the team because my neighbor had given me the name of a great doctor in Belgium who worked on like Wout van Aert's knee and uh, Vanderpool's. He, he operated both of their knees and also Remco. And um, he gave me this guy's name and said, like, just contact your team. And my team just pinged off a quick email. Yep, you will have a, an appointment for a consultation with Dr. Class in two weeks. And I mean, I just, I would not be walking properly if the team hadn't pulled through like they did. They were just amazing. They organized that surgery for me. And then when I was there, Dr. Class was like, we need to look at your wrist. And for me, I had been so focused on just getting my knee back that I had been like, oh, more the wrist, yeah, whatever. But then he was like, no, we need to get somebody in to look at this. And then I was there, I met a wrist cons- consultant and yeah, it's just all been, thank God for Belgian doctors. They're really, I have to say, it's like a cut above anything I've experienced. So it's just been such a great place to rehab after my knee because I, I was rehabbing in the same place that um Remco did his uh, rehab after where's the crash I can't remember uh Illombardia right yeah um yeah because so he he had his surgeries at Herentals as well and so I was training every day and or training every day but like doing my physio every day there because I had the knee surgery and I stayed in Belgium for an extra three weeks this is back in April and every day I was going in there and I'd see like Remco's jersey up there and like you know Wout's jersey and it's just like that gives you an extra like these guys came back from literally what everyone's like his career ending you know and they have come back and look at them now you know so I that was really um, motivating for me so the team have been brilliant just really always supportive and yeah just always checking in on me it's really lovely with that um, connection that you have to so many other people through social media, mm. have you found people approaching you for for kind of advice or for a kind of just just to sound sound you out because they've gone through something similar in the same way that you're looking at Remco's jersey and that's inspiration? Have you mm. suddenly found yourself in a position where people are going, "Help me, Imogen! <laughs> this is you know something similar has befallen me. What do I do?" Yeah, I have, and I, it is really hard for me to get back to people. It's kind of at the beginning. I was trying really hard to, and I just realized that mentally it was really taking a lot out of me. I try and if I am going to answer something, I will try and do it in like a post. That's why I try and be very descriptive with my post because I can't find the time or the mental, like it takes mentally, it's really difficult to take on people's stories. Not that I don't like it because I love that people trust me enough and, and feel comfortable enough to send me a message to say, I'm really struggling with this and 
I, I love that, you know, people will feel comfortable enough to do that um, with me, but it, it is difficult to get back to every DM because it's a lot of DMs every day, really a lot of DMs every day. And it's hard to kind of, it's hard to keep on top of it. So I do try and, and answer everything quite clearly in, in every post I put up. I try and just kind of go through my recovery and what I'm doing and different training and, and, and in my stories as well. But yeah, I found that it's, it's definitely, I can't get over the messages I get from people being like, you've inspired me to do this. And I wasn't riding my bike for the last two months, but seeing you work so hard to get back on yours has motivated me to get out on mine. And, you know, these amazing, amazing messages that just, um, yeah, they, they really do motivate me. Imogen, you said earlier that your first race back isn't going to be a fairy tale, but I think the story's already had a bit of a fairy tale ending. I hope you'll come back and join us and let us know what the next chapter holds next time we're chatting on Cyclist Podcast. Yeah, yeah, I look forward to it. I'll, have, I'll try and get some good results and then come back to you guys. <laughs> Thanks for chatting, Imogen. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, Emil. <laughs> So Imogen Cotter, Anthony, one of your compatriots uh, over in Girona doing doing incredibly well, all things told. Um, incredibly inspirational story, one that I found truly moving. And I don't know how, and, and, I, and I, I'm a third party sitting in on that. I don't know how she manages to still, you know, to talk about it without getting really upset or really angry. Because I think the thing that's hardest in a situation like that is just the sheer surprise and unfairness of it as much as anything else, just being completely blindsided. I don't know how you managed to kind of process that. There was a couple of times in the interview, I'm not sure, I was trying to make this like laser eye contact with you going like, should we still be recording this? This seems like a very vulnerable moment here. And I could see Imogen welling up and I was like, half of me was going, this is a really vulnerable moment. And half of me is going, keep it rolling, baby. This is podcast gold, <laughs> keep it rolling. No, this is true. But then I, I just feel like, you know, that and that's a kind of quandary with any sort of broadcasting when you're talking to people about real life big shit is, is, is it okay to do that? Is it, is it okay to, to want to talk about it and to, to put that out there for other people to listen to? And, you know, if you're, I, dis, I would disagree with the way it's done in, say, a red top newspaper, a, you know, a tabloid. But I think hopefully in the form of like a podcast and particularly within the form of something like cycling, you're talking about something that can happen to anybody and does happen to people. And without putting words into Imogen's mouth, it feels very much like that's also part of the process of, of processing. And if there are any sort of weird messed up silver linings, it's that you get to go through it and then you can help other people at some point in time go through it too, because the it is not going away. So I think it's important to have those conversations. I think that's a great point because it's one I've struggled with a lot of times uh, on podcasts because we take this week's episode or last week's episode with Corey Williams where he's talking about you know racial discrimination and his battle to get to the top in cycling or imaging you know going through the harrowing tragedy of getting hit by a car out training and depriving her of her year in national champs jersey and it's easy for us to just press stop on the interview and you go back and go and interact and you know with your friends and family and girlfriends and rest of the day goes on as normal but they still have to live with that issue that they have unpacked and 
that kind of sits with me weird sometimes, but it's when you explain it like you did, that's how I rationalize it because there's other people going through that same battle and it's not just me and you having a conversation with these people in a vacuum. There's the audience out there who are connecting with this message and saying, okay, that's me. Now I'm taking a little bit of hope that I can push through racial prejudices and hit my goal, whether that goal is you know, a a work goal, a cycling goal or otherwise. And the same with Imogen. There's undoubtedly people coming back from injury, sickness, illness or any other hardship who are now looking at how hard Imogen is working to get back to the level she was at. And that's inspirational. Exactly. And I think I came across this um, because, yeah, for at some point in my life, I went to university and spent a lot of money on it. And now I've forgotten most of it. But (laughs) something that still sticks in my head is this idea that um, one of the ways of defining kind of humankind is we are... Uh, rational storytelling animals and it's those stories it's the sharing of information cast in a kind of like narrative sort of way that forms the way that we we exist and process and work in the world and so it's really for that reason alone it's incredibly important to communicate and that is one of the amazing things about the internet is being able to cast that net even wider because you change the narrative don't you you go from saying okay something like that is career ending or is life-changing in a way that you can't roll back on and becomes a huge negative. So just changing the perspective based on other people's experience to know these things can be dealt with. We can move forward, whether it's yeah racial prejudice or whether it's a really bad accident. You just change what hopes and expectations you have through hearing about other people having changed theirs. So that's, again, yeah, really important to, to have those stories out there, I think. And there's so many good lessons from that podcast as well, even the idea of second and third opinions and aggregating a bunch of these opinions at the very start. I was over in my mom's house the other day and talking about how generations do this differently. Uh, she was sick and she wanted to go to the doctor, so she called the doctor and it was like a skin thing, so she needed a dermatologist, not a regular doctor. Uh, she called the doctor and she's like, I'm waiting for the doctor to call me back and it's like four or five days, the doctor calls back, it's like, actually, we don't deal with dermatological issues. But it's like, instead of doing that, it's like imaging suggested you could like call 20 doctors at the very start and then six of them will call you back and then one of them or two of them might go i'm a specialist in that one of them will go okay i have an appointment tomorrow and it's like by broadening that scope at the very start you give yourself a much more favorable chance of the outcome you're looking for and i think imogen maybe had to learn that the hard way at the start because she just consented to some of them operations without saying okay let me get a second third fourth opinion yeah but now she's over it like some of the best surgeons in the world Mm. yeah i mean it is crazy isn't it to put yourself in that position at the beginning of that journey yeah she's with amazing surgeons now um but yeah being scared the language barrier you know not just not be able to communicate probably anyway because you're in insane amounts of pain and you're super scared and then you can't because you also can't speak the language and vice versa and then just really just placing your trust like 110 percent in in someone that's got you know, a clipboard in their hand and saying, we're going to be doing this thing, is that okay? And you go, well, I don't know. It doesn't feel like as much opportunity at the moment to say no because I'm, you know, I'm in a hospital and you're telling me I'm pretty banged up and I'm bleeding everywhere, so do whatever you need to do. Yeah, uh, that is a, that's a scary place. That is a very scary place to be. We're rolling well with the podcast, James. We're number two down. I know. Two down. Well, exactly. Yeah, two down. And we've already gone through some scary places. Uh, hopefully, there'll be some some lighter, <laughs> lighter chit chat. It's the start uh, of a dynasty. Episode three. Yeah, well, everything's got to start somewhere, mate. These these will be these are the sorts of things I'll probably um, 
put on a tape and jet into space and it will just be orbiting the world. You know, he's playing a bit like some Brahms Requiem or uh, Imagine <laughs> by John Lennon. The early, the early tapes. Too early to say the Anton Deck of Cyclone Podcasting. The Anton J. Yeah, that's, no, it's too early. Too, too early. Well, my middle name's Edward, so that kind of works. Anton Ed. Anton Ed could work, yeah. Anton Ed could work. I, I, I don't know. I don't think anyone knows which one is which out of those two. We'll just leave it there. <laughs> We're absolutely going to leave it there. Right. It's been absolute pleasure as always, and I will see you in two weeks' time. Catch you in the next edition, folks. When you're clocking up all those miles in the saddle, sometimes poor road conditions or a lapse in concentration from another road user can lead to you taking a tumble. And with your body and your precious bike to consider, it's important to get help from a personal injury specialist like Express Solicitors. They'll work to get you back to your best by recovering costs for your damaged bike and gear, as well as securing you physio and mental health support. Express Solicitors will quickly tell you on the spot if they can take on your claim with real cyclists working on your problem. They take on cases others won't to help you get the most compensation possible and to be back out enjoying the open road as soon as you can. So if you need to speak to a helpful and dedicated team solely specialising in personal injury claims, visit expresssolicitors.co.uk forward slash cycling.